Messy Church. It's been the title of the sermon series that we've been in through this fall, and it has been taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, which was a very messy church, the church of Corinth. It was messy for many reasons, but the primary reason was, was because of what was happening in that city. Corinth was established by Caesar in 44 BC, was rebuilt, the city in Greece. This city was a thriving city economically. There are reasons for that, and if you want to know more about the background to the Apostle Paul into the city of Corinth, go listen to the last two sermons. But in the center of that city of Corinth, which many modern-day biblical historians assimilate or compare to the city of Amsterdam, a place where everything was legal and encouraged. It was in the middle of that sin-soaked city, the city of Corinth, that the Apostle Paul spent 18 months pioneering this church. In the center of that city was a temple There were 26 different temples, but the largest one, the most visited one, was the temple to Aphrodite. She was the goddess of sexual pleasure, reproduction, intimacy, relationships. And so people who were moving in that direction would go and worship her. And because of that, there was what we would call money, sex, and power. That's what drove the city of Corinth, money, sex, and power. What I want to talk about this morning is power. I want to talk about what the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth because I think it is as important in Charlottesville in 2019 as it was in Corinth 2,000 years ago. This sermon began dealing with all three money, sex, and power. Then it dropped down to money and power. Then it dropped down to just power. I will deal with money and sex in two weeks. I know you don't want to miss it. (laughs) Next Sunday, we have a very special service that you will not want to miss. But the reason why I am focusing on the idea of power is because in two weeks when I preach on money and sex, if you do not understand power, what we will talk about then will be irrelevant. The voice or the tone of the scripture we're getting ready to read that I'd like for you to have in your mind would be the tone of a concerned father. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church that he pioneered. He spent 18 months there, which was a long time for the Apostle Paul to be anywhere. He is now writing with pastoral, fatherly concern. My father taught me how to do carpentry. If I did with my son Peter what my father did with me, my wife Fran would die of a coronary. I remember my father hauling me up on top of the barn with a rope, lifting me up, sitting me on top of the barn and saying, there are rules when you're up here. You do it my way. 
and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We have leaps in the roof, and I need your help. You will listen to my voice. You will do what I tell you. And I said, sure. I knew that my dad loved me, but his parental voice was one that I knew I needed to listen to. Please follow through this text and the scriptures and the thoughts that I'm bringing this morning with the Apostle Paul's fatherly, lovingly voice. Our text will begin with the introduction, the first paragraph, to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Paul called the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God where? In Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. That ought to be every single follower of Jesus. We are being sanctified and we know we're called to holiness which simply means we don't live like the culture in which we live. Holiness. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's you and me. Paul knew that this letter would go beyond Corinth. That it would be read, and here we are 2,000 years later reading this letter. What is important to understand is that the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth about things they need to know. Now, being a messy church like ours, the church in Corinth was struggling, or some of the people in Corinth in that church, and they were struggling because they would worship like this on Sunday, and then on Monday they would go and involve themselves in the temples. They would go and eat meals there. They would go and do things like they used to do before they chose to follow Jesus. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 to 21, the Apostle Paul writes to these people. He writes to them, and here's what he teaches them. He writes, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, which is communion, and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. I want to talk about power this morning. Because you see, the Apostle Paul is teaching the people in Corinth something that's mission critical. And it's mission critical because in Paul's view and in the biblical view of the world, there are idols, but Paul is teaching that those things that are made of wood and stone, that what's behind them spiritually is demonic. They're not benign. They're not neutral. And the higher level teaching that Paul is bringing, the thing that he wants the church in Corinth to understand, and what you and I will understand by the end of this sermon is this, that there are natural beings in the natural realm, but there are also spiritual beings in a spiritual realm. And often, those beings in the spiritual realm enter into the natural realm. That's what Paul is teaching. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul calls the evil force behind all things the powers. And he writes in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the natural people in the natural world, but against rulers and authorities and against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces or the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In almost all of Paul's pastoral letters, he is discipling the churches that there are spiritual realities that you cannot see with the eye, but they are opposing you in your journey with Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, after having spent 40 days with Satan, Here's what Jesus believed about Satan. He writes, The thief comes, the thief is a name for the devil. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In the book of Acts, we learn what the first century church thought about evil. They write to us and we hear a talk given by the Apostle Peter who had the second best name in the entire Bible. Here's what the first century church believed. Peter teaches, Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. It's amazing in Scripture, and it's amazing in the Bible, and it's amazing how all the spiritual leaders in the Bible are comfortable talking about evil as a real, true, spiritual entity that moves against us. Paul was extremely comfortable talking about it, and so was Jesus. We need to understand that the Bible presents to us and the Bible speaks to us, God's word brings to us that there is a force that is beyond just some amorphic thing. There is an actual evil force that influences this world. This evil influence is sometimes termed in Scripture to be the spirit of the age, the prince of the air, principalities and powers, but more often than not, is presented as the powers. The powers. But what we also need to understand, and I've alluded to this already, that these powers, these influencers, sometimes break into the natural realm, and they become evil personages. The Bible begins in the creation narrative to present to us what's called the serpent. He's also known as the devil, Satan, Lucifer, demons, the thief, the Antichrist, and many others. You see, what's stunning is, is the Bible's very comfortable telling us that evil takes on personages and steps into the created natural realm. But where are we in our culture when we think about these things? And here's what I know. Some of you are sitting here getting very uncomfortable. You're going, honey, we should have slept in. But I feel 
that Paul as a pastor knew Corinth needed to hear this, so does the church in Charlottesville. Where are we in our culture? One of the people that is part of a preaching cohort that helps me write my sermons, she let me know of a book that she studied in her undergrad at UVA when she was studying religion. This book is called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. Here are some quotes from this book. Andrew Del Banco writes, So the work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. We live in the most brutal century in human history, but instead of stepping forward to take the credit, he has rendered himself invisible. Despite the shriveling of old words and concepts, we cannot do without some conceptual means of thinking about the sorts of experience that used to go under the name of evil. We have an inescapable problem. We feel something that our culture no longer gives us the vocabulary to express. He goes on to write near the end of his book. Yet, despite the monstrous uses to which Satan has been put, and what he writes a lot about in his book, about how the devil was used to weaponize leaders to abuse people, Small wonder that Satan would love himself to be used that way. But yet, despite the monstrous uses to which Satan has been put, I believe that our culture is now in crisis because evil remains an inescapable experience for all of us. While we no longer have a symbolic language for describing it, Santag herself expresses the crisis in the form of a question. How, she asks, can we find our moral bearings when we have a sense of evil, but no longer the religious or philosophical language to talk intelligently or in intelligently about evil? He goes on also to quote, in the words of the psychologist Henry Murray, with a Satan who is no more than a vestigial image a broken-spirited relic of a perished past, a ludicrous ham actor with no greater part to play in man's imagination. I want us to listen carefully, and that is this, is that this author is a professor at Columbia University. He's a literary professor, and he comes down to understanding this as his conclusion. Here's what he writes. When we cease being able to imagine and, and name this evil, whether in horror movies or serious literature or daily conversation, it will have truly gained mastery over us. Listen, he writes in his book about the pressure of modernity, which I would call the spirit of the age, which is another name for that evil force. What he says, under the pressure of modernity, all conversation of evil has ceased as a spiritual entity. But to balance this out, I want to read for us a quote by one of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. There are two equal and opposite errors 
into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to have an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. It's fascinating. Now what I can tell you is, is that at the outset of Paul's concern for the church in Corinth, he speaks very comfortably about the demonic. Again, he writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 21, he writes, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to what? To demons, not to idols. And then he warns them, those meals, those celebrations that you're a part of, those are meals to demons. There's something there that goes beyond that. Now Paul brings another concern in 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he talks about the serpent's cunning. And he writes to the church of Corinth in his second letter, he writes, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's fascinating about this is that the church in Corinth was all new converts. Very few Jews are in that church, and yet Paul makes a very quick reference to the creation story and the fall of Adam and Eve and Satan's deceiving cunningness. He references it, which lets us know that when he pastored in Corinth and the people that pastored after him, they were teaching the fall of Adam and Eve in their pastoral teachings because the Gentiles understood what he was talking about. But he mentions the serpent's deceptive cunning. Let me tell you a story of when I met a snake. I want to tell you a story. Probably be about 15 years ago, I do the laundry. Sometimes I do the laundry at my house. Not as much as I should, but sometimes I do. And so what I had done was I had done a huge stack of uh, laundry, towels, and it was a huge stack of towels. And before we redid our basement, we uh, had the washer dryer down there. There was basically two or three couches and the rest of the basement was unfinished. And so I went down there and I had done the, the towels about two hours earlier. And there was a huge stack of them and I was going to put them away because I'm an amazing husband. So I went down and I reached inside the stack like this and I lifted it up. And as I did, I felt something sliding between my fingers. It's a true story. And I was sitting there, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I looked like this. The towels were still warm. And I looked like this, and there was a snake looking right at me. Just like this. Now, my outdoorsman training has trained me. Are the eyes wide? Is the forehead flat and triangularly shaped? That never entered my head, not once, right? Now, the only thing that would have spooked me more 
was if that snake would have spoken to me. <laughs> Said, Pete, how you doing? Uh, not real well at the moment, right? So I'm looking at this snake. It's looking at me. And here's what went through my head. Snake! And I threw it down. And as I threw the laundry down, that snake slithered and it went into the couch. But its tail was sticking out about this much. So I reached out. Just kidding. <laughs> We've had snakes around our house, so I have a snake catcher in the garage, and I went, it's this homemade thing, and it's basically a noose on a pole, and I went and snuck it over its tail, and I pulled as tight as I could, and I pulled this three-foot snake out of the couch. Now, it happened to be a garden snake, so everything was fine. But not only did snake go through my head, Guess what else went through my head? Fran will never know about this, <laughs> ever, like ever. And she can attest it was years later I told her that story, and here's why. Because if I'd have told her that story then, we would have had a for sale sign in the front yard probably with the next day. We're moving, just we're leaving, absolutely leaving. You see, the idea is this, is it for all of us? Snakes make us nervous. And when you look at the story here, the Apostle Paul has a concern. And the concern is that the church in Corinth will be deceived by the serpent's cunning the same way Eve was. That they would be deceived and they would be unaware of an evil spiritual realm that would plague them if they left a blind eye towards it. If the Apostle Paul references the fall in Genesis with the serpent, we need to read it too. So what we're going to do now together, because I want all of us to read it, we're going to read it together, and when I'm done reading this story, I'm going to comment about Paul's concern for the church of Corinth and his concern for you and for me and what was the cunning nature of the serpent in this story? What was it? Here's the story. Now the serpent in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. God did not say do not touch it. Reading on, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. Remember that. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the, tree of the, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In other words, shame had just entered into the world. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's amazing what shame does to us. And he said, meaning God, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman made me do it. The woman you put here with me, catch that? The woman you took from this half of my body, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And this is one of the most sad quotes in the Bible. The serpent deceived me and I ate. That's Paul's concern. Is that you and I would be deceived by the serpent and we would eat as well. The real concern is that some of us here don't really believe in the devil. We don't. We believe that there might be something out there, but the Bible, again, is replete that there's actually an adversary to your soul. And if you were to ask, Pete, why does Satan hate me if you believe in him? Why does Satan hate me? I'm going to tell you very simply why. You are created in the image of God. And anything that reminds anyone of God's image, Satan will try to destroy. That's why. It's not because you're a follower of Jesus. It's because every human being is created in the image of God. And Lucifer, the devil, demons, whatever you want to call it, hates the image of God in humankind. But for some of us, my prayer is, is that we would actually be open to the idea of the demonic reality of this world. There's another snake story, so I want to share it. I have a friend of mine. She and I used to coach a soccer team together. I don't know how this story came up, but uh, we're family friends. Our kids were raised together. And she told me the following story. When her daughter, who's the same age as my middle daughter, when her daughter... Um, was three, she was out playing in the driveway. They live over in Ivy. And she was in the kitchen, and she could hear her daughter laughing and giggling and playing. And so after about 10 to 15 minutes, she couldn't figure out what her daughter was so excited about, why she was laughing so hard. So she went out to the driveway, and much to her horror, her daughter was playing chicken with her little baby carriage and a four-foot copperhead and had been out there chasing it around the driveway laughing hysterically. And then the snake would turn, it would rise up, she would take her baby carriage and ram it and then back up and the snake would come at her, she'd go at the snake, the snake. And this kid had been doing this for 10 to 15 minutes. Now listen, here's what my friend did. Ain't that funny. She just stood there, said, go ahead, play with the snake. What do you think she did? She grabbed her child, lifted up her kid, found a shovel, 
and killed the snake. Amen, sister. <laughs> you see, Satan comes as a serpent. There's something about that that's important to understand. Now again, it's often at this time where people will ask me, Pete, do you honestly believe people can be demon-possessed? Absolutely. I don't say this to freak you out, but we have prayed for people at City Church who were demon-possessed. There's no other way to explain what was going on in their soul. Zero. Almost all of them, and the most tormented of them, it was because involvement in the occult, in the satanic church, they had come to city, given their hearts to Jesus, and they needed to be free. Jesus set people free from demons. Not mental illness, not weird demons. And the Bible is comfortable telling this. Why? Because it's real. But again, I will caution you with C.S. Lewis's quote, Ignoring the enemy or having an over-self-indulgent interest in the enemy, both of those are errors that the enemy loves. Both of them. What I stand to do is stand in the authority of Jesus. Because Jesus has authority over the enemy, and so does anyone who walks with Jesus. Anyone. Now, the Apostle Paul is concerned for the church in Corinth. He says it so clearly in 2 Corinthians, I'm concerned that you would be deceived by the serpent's cunning the same way Eve was. So what was the cunning reality of the enemy of our soul? What did he do? Three things. I want you to think about these very, very carefully. First of all, what he says to Eve is this. Did God really say... Did he really say that? Now, I want to take one step back. We're going to talk about Scripture just for one brief moment. There has been an attack on this book that has been relentless for thousands of years. A few Sundays ago, I talked about the efficacy of the Bible. But I know what's behind all the attack on this book. It's so that... Followers of Jesus, and those of you sitting here who aren't followers of Jesus, that we would somehow come to believe that Scripture really isn't from God. Did God really say? Got to think about that. Because next week, we're going to, or in two weeks, we're going to talk about sex and money. And if you don't believe God's word is God's word, what we're going to talk about then will have no potency in our lives at all. None. But I believe that God's word is God's word. Did God really say? Yes, he did. Another way of looking at that is the enemy comes to Eve and says, can God's word really be trusted? Can you really trust his word? The next thing is that the serpent says to the woman after trying to get her to doubt, did God really say it, which she said, yes, he did. He honestly said it, which is even more stunning because she was disobedient to it. The serpent said to the woman next, for God knows that your eyes will be opened. In other words, the God of the scriptures, 
has things that he calls us to do and things he calls us to avoid. But what he's sowing in her mind is that God knows your eyes will be open. In other words, God's holding out on you. God's a prudish God. And so God's going to say things and he's actually holding back from you. And then last, the enemy comes to her and says this, God knows that you'll be like God if you eat of this fruit. In other words, Eve, be your own boss. Be the captain of your own ship. Be the master of your own destiny. Eat the fruit. God knows that really you ought to have that authority and that place in life, not him. Please know this. Yes, the fruit is dangerous. But the real danger is to be found in the one who is cheering you on to eat it. That's the danger. All of us know exactly what I'm talking about. And again, one of the saddest quotes in all of the Bible is when Eve says to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. But let's end on a Jesus note. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 tells us this. That Jesus has provided for us the victory. Here's what Paul writes, and believe me, in every pastoral letter, Paul is writing about evil powers and Jesus having victory. And in Colossians 2.15, he writes this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... Remember, the powers, evil. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a spectacle, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by what? The cross. Never walked far from the cross of Jesus, ever. And remember this. They nailed him to the cross to make a public spectacle of him. He took the cross and flipped it. And in flipping it, he made a public spectacle of them. Of them. Why? Satan has come. Evil powers have come to bring death and destruction. And when everything they had was poured out on Jesus, three days later, he raised victoriously over death, hell, the powers principalities and powers, authorities, and he triumphed over all of it through the cross. Would you stand with me? What I want us to do in this moment is I want us to read the lyrics to one of my favorite hymns. Full confession, I have memorized this hymn because there are times where I have sensed evil coming against me. That sense of being oppressed. But this hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, is one that I've sung to myself innumerable times. I'm going to ask with me No, I'm not going to sing it, but we're going to say it out loud. 
I want you to say it out loud with me. If you have ignored the enemy of your soul, as you say it, my prayer is that your faith in Jesus would rise up and you'd believe in God's word and what Paul is teaching the church of Corinth and what Jesus did and taught so clearly about evil in the world. Let's say this hymn together. Are you ready? Do we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing? You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. His, the, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, and that one word, is Jesus.